This is the Shift Podcast. A special edition of the Shift Podcast here for you. What do you do when you hear noises and bumps in the night? Isaac Murdoch heard some bumps when he was in the cabin, hunting, in the middle of northern Ontario. He tells us that story and how he did. He's an Indigenous storyteller. He also shares some stories about some morals, manners he calls them, and some different creatures that may walk into your city or walk into your life. And they're there to test you, shapeshifters, to make sure you are living a life of kindness and love. It's a special edition of the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Well, we've had many different topics here on the shift. Skinwalker Ranch down the States, all of the spooky beasts and beings that that creep around at nighttime that scare us. And, and we wanted to dig into a conversation about Canada. And this is how we were introduced to Isaac Murdoch. Isaac is Anishinaabe. He's a storyteller. And um, you're by Elliott Lake. And I, Isaac, I can't. I... I I really want to try to pronounce this, but I need you to say it for me. And how about I try to repeat it so I get it accurate and get the pronunciation of where you are? Let's try it. Okay. So I'm at Nimki Ajbakan. Nimki Ajbakan? Yeah, you said it perfectly. Sweet. All right, cool. Yes, you did it. Uh, tell me about your community first, because you're kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, what, uh, why in the middle of nowhere? Is that where your family's from? Is that where your bloodlines roll or, or is it just you, are you just a woodsy person who likes to be in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> well, a little bit of both. I guess this is our traditional lands. Uh, we, we, you know, grew up around here. We're from here. And so we live in, in the forest off grid and we, uh, live a traditional way of life. You know, of uh, right now we're actually working on a moose hide. We're going to be brain tanning it. Wow, hey. And so it's all about language revitalization. It's all about on the land. It's all about, you know, just really getting back to our original instructions as Anishinaabe people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's quite amazing. The language part for me as a broadcaster, as you can imagine, is the most important part from my perspective. I love it. And being able to hear, we've had some guests on from the West Coast to the East Coast. And, and there was a, a lady, she's a... She's a PhD academic um, in her indigenous community in Vancouver Island and how she teaches young kids storytelling in a, you know, in original languages. And she helped us understand the nuances and the differences even around BC, the number of different languages that are there. And it seems to be we've had comedians on, artists on, and young people that are living in the city chasing their dreams. It seems to be the most common thread I've ever heard from indigenous people, Isaac, is that well, I kind of know some of the language. I know little bits. I know I should know more. Um, we hear that. And it seems to be the common theme that most people are taking a stand to protect. And most uh, people from community, they know full well that that's probably one of the biggest responsibilities as they go to older that they need to take on. Is that accurate? Absolutely. I mean, we have to remember that there was a complete erasure of our Indigenous ways, our way of life on the land. And of course, it was the Canadian government's mandate to make sure that we weren't speaking our languages. Yeah, so like specifically, actually mandate. Like specifically. So it was there was policies put in place that specifically discouraged us from speaking our languages. For example, residential school. Mm-hmm. So of course, there's a huge movement right now in rekindling our languages. And it's so important because the languages come from the land. And the languages hold our stories. They hold our history. They hold our bloodlines. And not only that, but they also hold the ecological code on how to live on this earth. Mm -hmm. 
because all of the words and the phrases, they all come from the land. And so your whole worldview changes as you're learning the language. And you can't help but become an earth person when you learn an, an indigenous language. Mm-hmm. It's built right in there. And so it's actually really a, an important part of trying to fix climate change is revitalizing indigenous languages. Mm-hmm. I get that. I so, mean, it makes total sense when, I, when I've learned about the different um, faith. I mean, the core of the faith I've, I've learned from the outside of indigenous people in Canada, I mean, it's fundamentally the same, but the nuances change as you kind of make your way across the country and, and the different groups and communities. But it totally makes sense when you say it that way, Isaac, I've never thought of it that way that, you know, you speak to the land and you speak to the creator and all the different pieces of people. I mean, in today's language of, you know, vocabulary and dictionaries, I mean, that's the ecological system put into action in words, really, right? I mean, we talk about, you know, clouds and rain and water and rivers and fish, but the reality is, is that that ecological system is deeply embedded into the the words in the language, yeah? Oh, absolutely. So, for example, you know, my grandparents lived their life without a garbage can simply because they were raised in the worldview through their language that they were, you know, very special visitors here on Earth. They were guests that they had to leave it the same way that they they arrived here and that future generations were going to benefit from their good manners and their good form on how they treated the earth. And that's all embedded in the the language. So the language is like 100,000 Googles. It has so much information in there. It has so much, you know, high education in the language. It's all embedded inside of there. And that's why, you know, as Western education kind of like sweeps the globe, it's erasing valuable information and a higher education that the that the society needs right now. Um, if there's ever a time when we needed this higher education of how to live our life without a garbage can, it'd be right now. Yeah, right now, you got so, it. Yep. And so, yep. the, you know, we have to really highlight and show the importance of Indigenous languages. You know, they're grossly underfunded by the government. And so we need to keep pushing and trying to create more awareness that we need to have more support for Indigenous languages. They're not even considered mm-hmm. an official language in, yeah. in Canada. I get that. Well, and, and and I mean, as a guy who, with the English language, I'm such a proponent of, we use all these words all day that we don't even know what the meanings are truly. We don't even know what words are and how words function, let alone um, to get into that spiritual side and the connected side that you talk about. I mean, it seems like we're very well aligned in our belief that, you know, these are the core ways that we exist and interpret and speak to ourselves, let alone each other. And yet we don't really understand how it works and nobody's supporting that. So I'm, I'm right there with you in that stand, my friend. Yeah, I'll give you an example. So when we look at the word education, you know, the word for that is kinemagewen, which means, yeah, means the land. Kinemage. It means like the land is showing us or it's teaching us. And then the win is the way of. And so our word for education literally means the land is teaching us. Hmm. The land is showing us. And so, you know, our whole worldview of education is based on what the land teaches us because we have to live here. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's for us, that's the basis of our education is, of course, the earth. You and smile when you say that word, though. You know that, right? Like you, you. I mean, uh, nobody can see you on the radio, <laughs> but I can see you on our video call. Um, but when you say, so say it again, and let, let me try to say it. So for the, what's the word for education? Kinemagewen. Kinemagewen. Yeah. 
Okay, so but you smile when you say that. Like you you your face lights up when you use your your words. I really do because the the indigenous language is something that you know carries so much spiritual property to it as well. And it fills me with pride and hope and dignity and it 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 gives me a sense of of belonging as well. I know who I am. And so it's really important, you know, for all of our people to invest into to language. I don't do hardly any projects at all if it doesn't involve language. Hmm. Simply because we're at that critical time where we're losing so many elders, so many first language speakers, that it's really important to, we got to drive this home. It's important to work hard and just drive it home. Mm-hmm. So whenever I hear the language, whenever I speak the language, it fills my heart. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. Well, or lost forever. That's really the choice, right? That's the choice. And I mean, they always say that the language never gets lost. The animals, the birds, the trees, they'll all carry it. But us as Anishinaabe people will be lost forever. Mm -hmm. Well, you, uh, this is fascinating. I could talk about this for hours. So we, uh, let's... (laughs) We'll, we'll just keep chatting about it. I love it. Um, Isaac Murdoch is a storyteller, and you tell the story of the Wendigo spirit um, and many other spooky, spooky things. And the neat thing, I think, about um, Indigenous storytelling, uh, whether it's all across North America, and I think it's important to be distinct in that I believe it's Treaty 7 people were very, very mobile people. They were North and South down in America, up in Canada, um, you know, the Dene, they moved a lot when they would, uh, in the different seasons and Portage and all the different things that they did. Um, and they, you know, there was an awful lot of uh, communities that moved around. And so language and stories and experiences did get carried and passed. Some communities did not move. They were like, this is our home. We're good. We're going to stay here. And yet they didn't interact with other communities quite the same way. And they have awfully similar stories in the realm of the spooky, even though they weren't interacting the same way as the more transient um, groups were. That in itself makes this spookier, Isaac, to begin with, let alone some of the stories that you like to share. You know, it's a spooky world out there. I ain't going to lie to you. It is. I agree. And I think that the the land itself carries so so much. So, for example, when I was recording elders talking about the pictographs, the painted pictures on the rocks. I would go to, like, for example, northern Saskatchewan, and I'd see a picture of a man, a wolf, and a moose. And they would tell the story of the creation of fire. And then on the Great Lakes, I'd see the picture of a man, a wolf, and a moose, and they tell the creation of fire. And yet they're, you know, 2,000 miles apart. One pictograph is 2,000 years old. The other one's like eight. And it just goes to show that you know, our, our oral history is so accurate. It's more accurate than books because these same stories keep popping up in different locations all across the country and they're exact. Mm-hmm. And they've been that way for thousands and thousands of years. So as a storyteller, we have a very strong ethics that we tell the story the same way that we found it and we leave it the same way. And that, you know, in order to be a, a storyteller in the language, akwenene is what we'd say. What that means, it's like you're talking about spirit. So atsukanan, that's our stories, our, our sacred stories. And we believe that they have spirits. And so every time I tell a story and I'm talking about these different spirits and maybe it's, you know, little people or thunderbirds or serpents, 
I feel like I have to make an offering to them afterwards <clears throat> because I invited them into our village, into our community to teach us once more how to live here on this earth. And so all of these stories require a certain amount of, of generosity and offerings. And so I think that the reason why so many stories are so similar, like in across vast amounts of land, is because the land itself is telling the story. And these stories come from the land. And so we're getting the same stories. Mm -hmm. Our elders always said that this, this land is filled with spirits. There's the Mimigwesiwak. There's the, which are like a little people. There's the Pahisak, which is another type of little people. There's the Pagujaniniwak, which is another type of little people. Then you have the, the you know, the Banabekwayak, the mermaids, you know, <laughs> and then you have like the Ninkibinesiwak, the thunderbirds, and then you have the Chiginabeguk, the serpents, and you have, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Some you of have, those but, sound particularly it, scary, though. I mean, they're not all just, I mean, let's be honest, making a, a sacrifice to them and, and an offering to them, a little bit of a bribe to, thanks for sharing your story, but you can go away now to the, uh, to the, to the negative, more scary spirits. That's what it sounds like anyway. It's always about good manners. And so even, <laughs> even the, the, the scary spirits that we talk about in our stories, as long as you have good manners, you're always usually able to wiggle out of it, out of it with maybe just one or two casualties. <laughs> <laughs> wiggle out of it. I love it. Um, yeah. Let's, uh, yeah, I mean, it is neat because as you go down to, like we've shared here on the show with the skinwalkers and all the different ones, and there was, a, there was another one up in the northeast United States, and I forget the name of it specifically, but it was something like, it was kind of like curmudgeon, but it was like, you know, mudgeon was the second word. And it was a smaller person looked a little bit like we see in a story time fiction troll type person, little, uh, littler, uh, uh, being that would sort of show up and had, you know, dark red eyes and, and all kinds of scary. So in the spirit of storytelling, I mean, help us understand the, you know, maybe some of the, the good beasts that are out there and, and some of the scary beasts that are out there. Well, I think when you look at the Anishinaabek culture, um, there's definitely scary ones that are always scary and there's good ones that could be scary or not too scary based on your, your, your good manners. And so we have lots of heroes and lots of, of tales of, of how these spirits helped us against these badder spirits. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot of stories about these spirits also when we were rude or when we were, you know, not walking this earth with good taste where we would be destroyed by them as well. And so it's like we're always put in check. So it's like, even if they're good, you know, they can still eat you. <laughs> you know, if you don't act, if you don't act accordingly, they're gonna they can get you. The bad ones, of course, they love rude people. Mm -hmm. They feed off of, of that rudeness. And so, you know, being proper and, and how we conduct ourselves is so important. And in our stories, it certainly teaches us that. Some of the most scarier ones, like we have Bagak, which is a, a skeleton, you know, that loves to eat little kids and will eat the the fat out of their kidneys, you know, and just, just a really scary being and has long fingers and, and likes to, to stick his fingers in little boys and like pick out the fat and, and like will eat the eyes and all of that. And so we were always told all the time, you know, Bagak, uh, Bagak loves fat, 
And so, you know, when you're out in the bush, make sure you're, you come home before dark because he's going to be wanting to eat your the fat around your kidneys That's and around your bum. Amazing. And so if you don't want that skeleton to be eating around your kidneys and your bum, then you better be home before dark. Yeah, well, and which would be terrifying for a kid. And not to mention, there's not a lot of streetlights where you live either. So you got to be home before dark, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Isaac Murdoch, our guest here, storyteller on The Shift. Coming up next, a firsthand account, or maybe a scary story, or maybe both, about a trip to the woods on a hunting trip that turned out to be very, very scary. This is The Shift Podcast. Storytelling is a magical, magical thing, and there's got to be an element of believability for yourself, for the person telling the story, and there always is an element of truth that's in it. This particular segment of my conversation with Isaac Murdoch, he gets into a very personal experience in the middle of the woods and talks about things that they see all the time. People make TV shows about this stuff. Isaac Murdoch, some scary storytelling. I'm Shane Hewitt. This is The Shift with Shane Hewitt. Have you, uh, have you had any sort of these mystical experiences yourself that you can share? I mean, th there's a believability to a good storyteller. I mean, uh, if you're not a good storyteller, you're just a good actor. And if in order to be a good storyteller, there has to be a believability that you can share a little bit of experience to that. So, Isaac, I mean, you live by Elliott Lake in the middle of nowhere, and you... Have you had your own experiences of, of things like this? I'm not talking about a skeleton that chases you and wants to poke your eyes out, but necessarily the, some of those spiritual moments where you go, whoa, like this is legit. Oh, absolutely. Um, when you live in the forest, it seems like you're more connected spiritually to things than you are in the city. And I don't know why that is. Simply because I think you're in, the, you're in something pure at, at its purest state. And so when you're in the forest, you know, you're constantly seeing, you know, lights in the forest that shouldn't be there. You know, there's no roads there. You know, there's no people there. And yet you'll have a light come over a mountain, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's 500 or 600 feet high. And you'll have this light come down and go into the lake. And, and next thing you know, it's like it's it's near you. And it's and, and so you, there is a level of fear. But there's also a level of, okay, I need to, to sit on the ground and I need to pray or I need to walk away from it and not look back. Mm -hmm. And so there was many moments where that happened, where we've seen lights and things like that. But there was other moments when all of a sudden a weird smell came into the camp. Me and my good friend, you know, his name was Alex. And we were in this small cabin, we we're picking wild rice. And a, and a weird smell came into the into the camp, right into the cabin. It, it, that smell was so strong. It smelled like uh, uh, mothballs and death at the same time. And we had to put toilet paper up our nose because our eyes were just watering from this awful smell that came in. And then all of a sudden, you can hear something outside. The wind came. And when the wind came, it brought something there. There was somebody outside chopping wood and the storm rolled in and the clouds were, were like bubbles. The clouds weren't normal. 
they didn't have that normal look on them. They had like big bubbles, big circular bubbles on the bottom of them. And they look like they're ready to pop. And so everything, even the way that the wind was blowing, but the lake was calm, how can how can the wind blow so strong? And there is it's like the lake was so calm. And that smell, and all of a sudden you can hear somebody chopping wood outside. And you know, we both got scared. Just just instinctively we got scared. Something inherently inside of us said something is not right. There is something here that is not human. And whatever this is, it reeks of death. Hmm. And of course, back in those days when we lived in our cabins, we didn't have uh, a lot of electricity and batteries and all that. So we used to make our, our own candles. And we used to make them out of little cans and put uh, Indian fat in there, nasasiganak and all that, with a little wick that we'd make out of uh, cattails. And we'd light this little candle, this little Indian candle. And me and him were kind of looking at each other, looking outside. We could hear the person chopping wood. And all of a sudden, this candle, it starts to vibrate. And as it vibrated, the shadows all across the room start to vibrate too. And panic start to set in. And I mean, not like, like a panic where you're just worried about something and like you're going to get in crap or something. No, this is a different type of a panic. This panic goes way deep, like way, way deep. And as this candle started to, to tremble and shake like it was frightened, it started to move across the table. And me and Alex were staring at it. And as that candle moved across the table, all of the shadows shifted across the room. And when I looked, I could see three people there was me, Alex, and somebody else. There was somebody sitting with us at that table. And so I, Alex started to freak out. He said, we got to get out of here. I said, there's somebody outside chopping wood, man. Like, we're where stuck. Do, what do you, where do you go? go? We're, we're, it's 10 miles across the lake to get to the road. Like, it's, it's, it's getting dark. I said, don't worry about anything. I said, we'll, we'll smudge. So I got out some uh, sweet grass that I always carried with me. And of course, we're smudging. And this is supposed to make you feel better. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to make you, make you feel safe and, and comforted. And, and clear, yep. Clear and ancestors and all this stuff. But when we burnt that sweet grass, it stunk. It stunk like that same smell. Whatever it was, was very powerful. And so I told Alex, I said, if we go outside, I said, I don't think we're ever going to be found again. I said, we're going to go to bed. I said, we're going to cover ourselves up with these blankets. And you got to remember, you're looking at two big, tough Indians, Bush Indians. You know, like I'm, I would have no problem with Alex fighting a bear. Mm-hmm. But whatever this thing was, it was different. And as this person was chopping wood outside, we could hear it. We could hear him laughing a little bit. But not a regular laugh. It was just enough laugh, like, to say, I'm laughing at you because I got you. Terrified. Because I'm going to eat you. Mm -hmm. Because you're dead. That's the kind of laugh. 
And so we laid down in our beds. He, he had a bed on the other side of the little cabin. I had a little bed there. And we covered up with the blankets. And all of a sudden, the chopping stopped. Everything stopped. And the candle went out, which that candle was, we made it so that it would burn for about at least six hours. And it went out in what, like 30 minutes. And all I could do was see light out the windows. It got dark and there was light out there. And you can see the shadows of going across the windows outside, not of just one person either. And so I just told him, we have to, we have to pray. And he says, I don't know how to pray. I said, well, <laughs> you better learn how, man. <laughs> no, there's something outside. I said, maybe we did something wrong. Maybe we stepped over some bones. Maybe we bad lucked ourselves. Maybe we didn't make the right offerings. Or maybe we made fun of somebody. Maybe our fishnet, you know, caught something. And it got stuck in there. And we brought it out to the land. I said, I don't know what's wrong. I said, but all I know is that we have to pray. I said, what else do we have? This thing that's outside can eat us. I said, you know, it'll eat our, our livers. I said, I, th I have a feeling I know what it is. But I didn't dare say the name. Because as soon as you, you say that name, then, it, you know, then it's, it's freak out time. It's like freak the heck out. And so I didn't say anything, but I had a good feeling I knew it was outside. And so I told him we have to stay in here and pray and put our, our tobacco in the fire so that this thing doesn't come in. And I started to sing Indian songs to protect ourselves. And, you know, this lasted for about an hour. Oh, wow. And then it finally, felt like forever, right? It felt like five years. Mm -hmm. You know, and then finally, after about an hour, you know, we noticed that the light dimmed and went away. And the smell was still pretty thick, but it also went away too. And so I think it was those medicine songs that saved us. It was those medicine songs that, and, and of course the tobacco and the fire that saved us. I think if we would have went outside, we would have been dead meat. Hmm. And we also had medicine hanging up above the door to prevent anything bad from coming in. I think that saved us too. So you go through this experience, probably never so happy to see a sunrise in your life as you are the next morning. Uh, but you do have to go outside. Um, I mean, if I was you, I probably would have opened the door and pushed Alex out. I said, you go look. <laughs> um, but uh, you go outside the next day. Uh, there's two things that come to mind. First of all, you're going to look around and see, for, look for evidence. I mean, that's a pretty human thing to do. And then the next thing you're going to have to do is reconcile what happened. Because you do need to go home at some point. And someone's going to say, hey, Isaac, how's your trip? And you got to tell that story without sounding like a crazy person. And also, um, I mean, based on what you said earlier, if you're going to share that story, you have to share it as you found it. And you can't change that either. That's part of the um, the manners thing, no? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I remember that morning when, when we woke up. I don't even know if I slept. But when, when sunrise came, I remember going outside and seeing the wood that was chopped. And, and that was a, just a solid reminder that this was very as real as it can get. And that there was something there. 
And I looked at the, at the clouds to see if they were normal. They were normal. I, I could hear the birds chirping. You know, the winds were, were normal. There was, you could actually see ripples on the lake. Um, everything seemed to get back, was, you know, got back to normal. But something inside of me didn't go back to normal. So when I when I got back home, I was like, you know, and we had to paddle ten miles, you know, to and then cross over a portage and then get to the truck. So, you know, I had time to think. And let me tell you, when we paddled, we paddled in strong unison. I would say it's probably the fastest paddle of your life. You sh- you should have seen us. We were like paddling pretty good. Yeah. But well, anyway, when we got back to the truck and we got back to the res the Indian reserve, you know, I started to talk about what happened to different people, not mainly older people, like people that were in their nineties, because I felt that they were so close to spirit that they'd be able to explain to me what happened. And that if we needed any sort of treatment, because remember we smelt that smell, Mm -hmm. we seen that light, we seen those shadows. So maybe that light went in our eyes and is in our bodies. Maybe that that shadow that we've seen was stuck to our shadow, or maybe it's in that shadow went in our mouth while we were sleeping. So I want to know is am I okay? So we had to get checked out. I did anyway, by a, a medicine person to make sure to do an, a spiritual examination. That sounds so funny, a spiritual examination. <laughs> it does sound funny actually but really when you think about it i think we as people could all use a little spiritual examination from time to time isaac murdoch here on the shift i'm shane hewitt some personal scary storytelling and what about some mythical creatures and mythical storytelling we'll get to more with isaac next this is the shift podcast I'm Shane Hewitt. It's The Shift, shiftheads.ca if you want to connect with everything that we've got going on on our show. Our guest, we continue in conversation with Isaac Murdoch. Isaac is a storyteller. He lives in Northern Ontario. And before we got to the break, he had this to say. Am I okay? So we had to get checked out. I did anyway by a a medicine person to make sure to do a spiritual examination. That sounds so funny, a spiritual examination. (laughs) i love it in fact we actually all could use a little bit more of a spiritual healing that's for sure time for some stories of some creepy creatures that have some incredibly important lessons for us to learn this is the shift with shane hewitt it sounds so crazy but at the same time when you think about even in western conversation today people talk about you know good vibration good energy you know all the hippies are talking about you know, it's just the language is a little bit different, right? Like you got to cleanse your soul, get peaceful, um, you know, and have someone, you know, whether it's meditation or prayer or different versions of the same thing, it all really does translate. I mean, energetically speaking, if you turn it into nothing but yoga hippie of the day today, you're talking about, you know, yoga, meditation, energy, vibration. I mean, it's not really that, it's not far-fetched at all if you, if you listen to what's even being said today. Oh, absolutely. I think there's people are really starting to to get it and are, are looking for alternative <clears throat> ways of being. Yeah. And so, you know, as Indigenous people, you know, that's already there. And so by going to the, the old medicine person and getting cleansed and, and getting, you know, checked over was really important so that I could feel confident in living my life without 
you know, getting sick or making other people sick. And so we view sickness, uh, you know, as a way of that as well. And so uh, that's what happened. And, you know, I still carry these views today. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very important that I, I carry this worldview and pass it down to my children. And, you know, I remember when my kids, you know, were like 12 years old, I had one, one of my kids was 12 years old and he's sitting there with his buddy and they're, they're acting all tough, you know, tough. And I was way up north in the bush with them. Eh? We were staying in this wigwam. And he's like, Dad, I want you to tell some scary stories. I said, no. I said, my boy, you're too I said, you're too young. I said, you guys will be crying around, you know. And you're going to tell your mom and I'm going to get in trouble and all this <laughs> stuff. I said, you know, like, never mind scary stories. I said, just chill out you know and at that time we didn't have like game boys or tablets or iphones or anything like that and uh and so they kept bugging me i said i'll tell you guys a scary story but if i tell you a scary story and you start crying you can't tell your mom you know i said that's the deal and so i started to tell this this ghost story that really did happen on the reserve it was a real story and when I started telling them the story and I, when, it, when it started to get really scary, they freaking started crying on me. <laughs> you know? And the, the tears kept coming down their face. And uh, as the, I kept telling the story, they got closer and closer together. We we're sitting in a wigwam. And next thing you know, they're like, they're like almost clenched onto each other, you know? And I finished the story and uh, you know, my son said, dad, you shouldn't. You should have been a responsible parent and not told us that story. <laughs> oh, that's so beautiful. Um, you love telling stories, though. It's become kind of the core of of you, and not only from sharing language and and sharing culture, but also, you know, just being able to. The art of storytelling is such an important part of you, Isaac. Why? Why you're very good at it. Let me acknowledge that. Um, you, it, that's that believability part. You have to have that experience to share it. And, and you're very, very good at it. But what is it about that? I mean, I get preservation, I get language, and all of that. But when it comes to Isaac, and, and what matters to you, I mean, this seems to be deeply woven into you. Well, I remember when I was younger, um, you know, like, we were uh, taken away by Indian agents as children. And in order for my mother to get us back, she had to get an operation that prevented her from having children again. Wow. And uh, my youngest brother was actually run over by an Indian agent uh, during the apprehension or the kidnapping or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. He was hiding underneath the van. Oh, no. And uh, they ran over him by accident. He survived. Uh, He's uh, disabled to this day. But after that, I remember my mother saying that uh, there's something flawed with Western education as a whole. And that it doesn't leave any space or room for indigenous knowledge systems. And that's why we were taken away to, to begin with. And so she had a very disciplined mind. And so after I was about 10 years old, I became completely infatuated and completely just immersed into stories. And, you know, as I got a little bit older, my mother sent me to go live with medicine men. And so I didn't have to go to school which was great. So here I was, I was just like a kid and I didn't have to go to school. My mother said, this boy is not going to, he's a Bushman. 
He needs to get educated in the bush because that's going to be his life. But as I got educated out in the bush with these with these old men, you know, they'd tell stories. And it was like me watching TV. Right. It's like Indian TV, you know. So I'd be sitting there watching watching them tell these stories, and I was so shy. I couldn't tell a story of myself. My life depended on it because I was too shy and I was too uh, maybe didn't have the confidence. I didn't have the wording. So nothing came out right. But one day, this old man, he says, you got to use your voice. He says, you've been learning these stories all these years. He goes, get out there and, and share them. And as a storyteller, some of these stories had to be earned. You just didn't get them for free. You had to give something for it, which meant you had to fast. You had to give offerings or gifts or presents to the elders for the story. And they had to give you the teachings of the story. So it was it's a very regimented, very strict thing in our culture is to be a, a, a knowledge keeper of stories. And so it wasn't easy. It was a lot of wood chopping to get some stories, I'll tell I you. Bet, eh? <laughs> Helping out. And, well, and let me let me insert this in there is that the way that I yeah. write about this is that there's two kinds of situations in language. Uh, one is we consume things. I mean, obviously we consume food because that's just, you know, natural human thing. But when it comes to the soulful look at language and the way we communicate, we either consume people like we're like, give me more, give me more, give me more, or we create. And um, in language, we either consume the language and take the easy way, the shortcuts, some might say sort of victim language, victim statements, whatever, or we create with it. And we try to use extraordinary words. We try to use language that words that tell the story. We're very careful and cautious in the way that we take those words and we, we do that. And what it sounds like to me is that even in inheriting the stories, you have to start the process of creation long before you get the story. You can't just consume the story and take it and, and, and digest it and have it be yours because it's not yours. You've got to create with it. And I, so for me, that actually provides uh, myself and in, in my belief system about how language works, some real evidence there about the experience of storytelling being an experience of creation, which is totally philosophical and hippie of me, but I love it. I like it. it every ounce of that feels so right in my heart. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, as, as time goes on for myself, the stories had a spirit of their own. And I'm just a keeper of the stories, but the stories themselves are their own entity. They're their own power. And so I'm just a carrier of that. So I'm not, for me, I can't say that I'm the I'm the one. I'm not the storyteller. I'm just a carrier of the stories. Right, yeah. And that these stories are very powerful. And so as I got older, I noticed that people started to ask, hey, dude, you know, you want to come come to our wedding and tell a story? Mm-hmm. Or, hey, we're having like a reunion. Can you come and do a, do stories? Or um, can you tell tell us about star constellations or something like that? Or can you speak about the Muslim at Biaganan, mm-hmm. the painted pictures on the rocks? And so before you know it, I started getting asked just locally uh, to tell stories. And then after that, it was uh, like not locally, like all over the world. And so like people in Peru and like, Spain and like, you know, all these international storytelling, uh, big conferences and, and festivals. And, you know, we're asking me to come and tell stories. 
and I'm I'm just a bush guy, right? <laughs> like, uh, you know, there's nothing special about me. It's the stories themselves that are carrying me in this life. Hmm. They're the powerful ones. Um, Isaac Murdoch is up by Lake, uh, literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's beautiful stories that you tell. And so here, I'm going to try something. Um, in the agreement of creating with the stories, if everybody listening right now in their own way can take one moment of kindness, you spoke earlier of manners. If we could find as a, the shift head audience that's listening right now, and everyone can agree that there's going to be one moment where we intentionally pay forward some manners, some kindness to a total stranger um, in our day today after listening to this stuff. Um, would that be would that be fair creation for you to ask you to tell us one story? That would be fair. That would be a good offering. Okay, cool. So of the stories that, that you carry with you, maybe a favorite or something that you can share, um, Isaac Murdoch, will, uh, will you tell us a story, please? Absolutely. So I remember years ago, the old people would always talk about this very spiritual being called Bombaday. And what that means is like a walking heart. And Bombaday is always very skinny. It's a spiritual being that's often in the form of a man. And they're skinny, skinny, skinny. Their ribs are sticking out. Their eyes are sunken in. They're dehydrated. Their hair is all matty and full of bugs. They may have some, some clothes on, they might not, but they never have shoes. And they're very, very desperate just to, to get water or food. And every once in a while, Bombaday, this very poor, very sick, sickly person that's on the verge of death and starvation that may not seem right will wander into the village and the old people will grab that that very very poor man and they will take them in and they will give them a bath they will wash him they'll eat they'll take the bugs out of their hair you know and i used to see them eat them and they'll they'll comb their hair and make the make it nice, put lots of beautiful soap in their hair, and they'll feed them, and they'll sing songs for them, and nourish them back to life. And I remember, one time, this old lady, she says, you know, the reason why I live to be so old, is because when I was younger, Bombaday came into the village. And we helped wash Bombaday and we fed Bombaday. And Bombaday thanked me and touched my shoulder. And that's why I got to live to be over 100. And so we believe that this spirit that comes in is very pitiful, very, very pitiful, and is almost on the verge of death. But we have to give what we have to them, our nicest clothes. We have to give them our best food. Even if we only have a little bit, we give them. And of course, we make them feel good. We try to make them laugh because they're dying, right? They're, they're starving to death. And we, we nourish them back to health over time. And at the end, Bombaday always mysteriously vanishes. Like there's no goodbyes. There's no see you later, thanks. And what they say is that Bombaday that has come into our villages are really Wesiwog animals that shape shift into humans to test our generosity 
to test our good manners, to test our hospitality. Because if the animal is going to give its life to us, if it's going to give all of its life to us, then we also need to be grateful and be, be sharing and caring to everything. Because we know in the natural world, everything gives everything to everything. And that includes us too. And so many years ago, Bombaday came into our village. I seen Bombaday. And I stopped on the side of the road to go help Bombaday. And I was my heart was a thumping. Because I thought this is my chance. Maybe maybe I'll be able to get Bombaday some water or something like that. I just stopped right beside him. He had a big shopping cart full of bottles. I stopped beside him on the highway. When I got out of the truck, there was, he was gone. There was no shopping cart and he was gone. And the people said, where did he go? I said, I don't know. But just by seeing him, we got blessed. We got special blessings that day. Just, just because we're going to stop and, and give this person some water and maybe a ride or money or whatever we're going to do. But for us, that's how we, we live our life, is through our heart and our generosity to others. That's the way of the land. You know, this land here insists upon that sort of generosity. That's how we're going to survive on this land. Without it, we will die. You know, there's no other way. We have to give back. That's called begin win. You know, that's the way of always giving back. And so that's something I wanted to share with, with your listeners is the story of Bombaday. It's beautiful. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh... dear to my heart. Uh, that that is beautiful, and it's exactly perfect. I think a uh, good reminder of not only the manners, but also the good story, and maybe a little humanity in today's world of kindness and doing things for others. Um, I I'm, I'm I feel feelings actually just uh, listening to you tell that story. It's it's a good reminder that you know doing nice things and the agreement we made is that we would find one way to share positive good manners forward. So I can't think of a better story than that. So. Uh, let's go forward and do that and, and share one kind thing to other people so we can um, maybe do our own version of Mama Day in a moment Absolutely. of kindness. Isaac, Absolutely. this has been a, a thorough pleasure for me. Um, I have still have so many questions. I mean, I have all kinds of mystical questions. Um, I'm curious to see from your learning and reading of other cultures and storylines where you find commonality in the, the stories that you keep. And, you know, uh, even the stories of Skinwalker and all the different uh, beasts of beings that you hear out of American indigenous culture that they, um, that they carry with us and that you find similarities in and around your own community and those stories as well. I mean, you even said lights flying over mountains. That in itself is probably a whole large conversation about, you know, where those beings are and what are they. And, and so there's so much more to be had here. I hope you'll come back on and, and we can share in this conversation again. Oh, I'd love to just, uh, Give me a jingle and we'll we'll make it happen. I love it. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. And for everybody listening, you know, many blessings to you and, and have a really great uh, life. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 